Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Sweet 212 Sessions. As those of you who've listened to previous episodes will know, our plan to relaunch Sweet 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and other cultural figures about their work, conducted via Skype, so apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them, and how the socio-economic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be available for free via SoundCloud, but I'd still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet212 as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. Today, I'm talking to Lars Eyer, who is a writer and also the subject head of creative writing at Newcastle University, where he previously taught philosophy. As well as two books on the French philosopher Maurice Blanchot, Lars has written five novels, starting with the trilogy of Spurious, published in 2011, Dogma in 2012, and Exodus in 2013, before beginning a new trilogy, of which Wittgenstein Jr., 2014, and most recently Nietzsche and the Burbs, 2019, have already been published. All are rooted in European literary and philosophical traditions, in particular modernism, and noted for their use of humour, which has led reviewers to compare them to Samuel Beckett and Thomas Bernhard. They have been translated into several languages and nominated for a number of awards. So Lars, welcome to Suite 212. Thank you, Juliet. It's great to have you on the show, Lars. I think we first met in 2011, just after I'd moved to London, and my friend, the literary critic David Winters, was raving to me about Spurious and insisted that I come to a reading of yours somewhere where you insulted a member of the audience with the worst thing you could possibly have called someone at that time, which was a Liberal Democrat. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we're now back, back to the point where that's the worst thing you can... Well, I don't know if it's even relevant to call someone a Liberal Democrat anymore, but anyway, let's talk about your most recent book first, Nietzsche and the Burbs. I wonder if you'd like to give a summary of the plot for those who aren't familiar with it and maybe uh, read a passage from the text to introduce it to our listeners. Certainly. Now, Nietzsche and the Burbs is uh, set in contemporary Wokingham. Wokingham is a a town in the suburbs um, of London, about 30 miles out from the centre of London. Wokingham is a very prosperous place, a middle-class place, it's a place which has been thriving for many years. And it's a safe conservative seat. The novel concerns teenagers who live in Wokingham. They're sixth formers. They're about 16, 17, 18 years old. They're at a uh, comprehensive school in Wokingham. And they're bored, rigid by the place. They're bored by it. They're appalled by it. They're horrified by it. They want to leave in some way. They can't yet actually leave. They're looking forward to going to university. But that's not yet possible for them. First, they have to do their exams. Anyway, they're bored, they're appalled, they're totally tired of living where they're living. And into their midst, into their sixth form, there transfers a fee-paying schoolboy. And this is the person that they nickname Nietzsche. And they invite Nietzsche to be the lead singer of their band. Their band really hasn't been going particularly well. They've lost momentum, they've lost faith in what they're doing. They've lost their belief in the transformative power of music. They think that Nietzsche's going to be the leader who will help them regain that belief. And Nietzsche indeed agrees to become a singer. He agrees to become the singer of their band, and he agrees to perform in a gig. And the whole novel builds up to this gig. 
I won't tell you what happened at the gig, but in general, you know, it doesn't turn out particularly well. Let me read you a characteristic passage. This is uh, something which might be familiar to your listeners. It's that house party where you make the mistake of inviting, sending out an invite via social media, and you end up with a lot more, you know, a lot more guests than you anticipated. Bombproof's house party, nine-mile ride. Why did he invite the beasts? You'd think he had known better than to invite the beasts, and the beasts' beastly friends, and the old beasts, the former beasts, the beasts who left before the sixth form, ye olde beasts, the beasts of yore. Bombproof's house party, with its unlimited alcohol, its seemingly infinite amount of alcohol, for its seemingly infinite number of guests, Bombproof sacrificed everything for popularity. Bombproofs invited everyone. Bombproof knew no caution. Bombproof advertised his party everywhere. A mistake, a terrible error. I think I feel sorry for Bombproof, Art says. You can't feel sorry for Bombproof, I say. A boom from the garden. The bullards have exploded something. A boom, terrorism, teen murder, poor Bombproof. Posh accents. Two private school boys in the midst of it all. How did they get here? Danger. Free-ranging beasts looking for trouble. Looking for posh boys to tear limb from limb. Discussion. Those two won't last a minute. Look at them trying to shake hands with people. Trying to be courteous. Why can't they just blend in like everyone else? How long before someone knees them in the balls? How long before they're doubled up on the floor? Not long. Dingus, headbutting the first posh boy. That's gotta hurt. It's justice, I say. It's class war. The second posh boy, trying to escape, trapped by Fatberg in a half-Nelson. The second posh boy, face being rubbed in an ashtray. Should we rescue them? Merv asks. Screw them, Art says. They've had all the privileges. It's every man for himself. The poshos staggering in our direction, one bleeding from a cut over his eye. We'll have to save them, we agree. They're behind enemy lines. We'll have to smuggle them out. Okay, Art says, but only because they remind me of Nietzsche. Why did they do that? The first posh boy asks. It's a structural thing, Art says, a class thing. You'll never understand. Just drink, I say, parting the vodka. And don't open your mouths. If anyone hears you speak, you're done for. Follow us if you want to live, Art says. We'll go through the house and let you into the front garden. But be careful. The beasts fight dirty. It's not Queensbury rules here. They bite and they'll give you tetanus. Through the crowd in the living room. Merv's a real working class person, Art says to the posh boys. Have you ever seen one before? They're an endangered species. Do your working class dance for them, Merv. Merv giving Art the finger. Merv's salt of the earth, you know, Art says. A real geezer. There aren't many like him left. It should be on your bucket list. An evening with a real working class person. So tonight's your lucky night, really. Look, we just want to get out of here, second posh boy says. The study. 
forcing the window open. Okay, this will get you into the garden, Art says. The coast's clear. Run through the grass and climb over the fence. Godspeed, lads, Merv says, watching the posh boys escape through the garden. They're gentler than us, aren't they, I say, and taller. The master race, Art says. Later, barricade in the study. The sound of breaking glass, breaking windows, breaking light bulbs. Who the fuck is breaking light bulbs? The sound of curtains being torn from their railings. The sound of curtain rails being pulled out from the wall. Beasts shouting from the bathroom upstairs. They're trying to rip the toilet from the floor. A huge crunch. They've succeeded in ripping the toilet from the floor. The screams of Nessa threatening to kill herself. The screams of Bianca threatening to do it for her. It's a fucking teenage wasteland out there. It's the fucking teenage song. It's only a matter of time before they set the house on fire. Climbing out of the study window. Chaos. Someone's pulled up a tree, a whole tree, and it smashed through the greenhouse. So that was what that noise was. Eddie Bullard trying to set the rhododendrons on fire and having some success. Bullard's even more insane brother chopping up the garden furniture, the garden shed to make an even bigger fire. For the Bullard twins expelled in year 10, the world is there to be set alight. The Bullards serve strange gods. Binky collapsed in the grass. Binky's out, limp, wails from her friends, general freaking out. She's been doing coke. They've all been doing coke. Binky's had a reaction. Binky's out cold. Should they call an ambulance? Is there a doctor in the house? Binky waking up and crying, I'm okay, bitches, before passing out again. That will do us, I think. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. That passage and reading the novel more generally induced a great deal of nostalgia in me because the scenario was, was instantly recognisable to me. I went to Sitform College in Horsham in West Sussex, which is equally middle class and equally safe for conservative seats. And, you know, that passage in the book in general reminded me partly of the absurdity of trying to conduct class war in a place like that, and particularly <laughs> the absurdity of trying to conduct class war through fronting a band that were basically just trying to be Joy Division, uh, which is what I was doing at the time. Can we talk a bit more about the importance of the suburban band, the sick formers and the characters, and maybe how it relates to the idea of amour fati, a love of one's fate, uh, an expression coined by Nietzsche that you've written about elsewhere? Yeah, so... We had, a, we had a suburban band, like everyone else, it was seen, you know, everyone has their suburban band. And the idea for us with our band was that we'd somehow redeem our suburban existence. That somehow, through playing music together, working together, collaborating, somehow we'd reach this, this ability to play music that would allow us to release something, that would put our town on the map, that would make our town a legendary kind of place. A bit like for us growing up, you know, Manchester was or thinking of a smaller town, somewhere like Athens in, in the States. So the idea for us was that we could somehow redeem our existence, make sense of it, make sense of who it was we were, to make sense of the suburbs, to give it all some kind of meaning retrospectively by saying everything in our lives, everything in the suburbs led up to this, led up to our band, led up to our music. And the idea for us was that one day, People would leave pilgrimages to Wokingham. People would leave pilgrimages there to see where it was we recorded our music. And it'd be very difficult for them to understand how it was possible. And yet at the same time, it would also encourage them, if they lived in similar suburban settings, 
if they lived in similar middle-class places, it would encourage them to think they too could do this. They too could redeem the suburbs. I was actually back in my hometown, uh, Hawley in Surrey, quite recently and was walking uh, under the subway that goes under the railway lines uh, near the big Waitrose. And someone had put up a blue plaque saying that the subway had inspired the subway song by The Cure, which was on their album Three Imaginary Boys in the late 70s. And I don't know if anyone has made pilgrimages to this subway as a result of The Cure writing (laughs) this song about it. I mean, the song is two minutes long and has about six lines. (laughs) And that's the sum of my hometown's contribution to pop music history, given that my own band sadly failed to get off the ground. I moved to Manchester in 2000 and I desperately wanted to form a band in Manchester inspired by you know Joy Division, The Smiths, The Four, all the things I was listening to at the time. So I formed a band called Zinoviev Letter, which went absolutely nowhere, but does uh, the failure of it does get written about in my memoir, at least. So that's something. We'll come back to the Manchester music scene in a minute. I want to ask you about the structuring conceit of this latest trilogy of which yeah, Wittgenstein Jr. and Nietzsche and the Burbs have already been published, which is this tactic of transposing these noted European philosophers who sit within this 20th century tradition, either in Nietzsche's case because he was a huge influence on 20th century philosophy or Wittgenstein's case because he was one of the most seminal people within it. This tactic of transposing them into these sort of contemporary and quite mundane British settings and why use Nietzsche and Wittgenstein in particular? Well, these figures are immensely charismatic. There are figures who tried in their lives to embody what they thought, tried to live up to it. So these figures revived a tradition in philosophy which goes back to ancient Greece, to ancient India, to ancient China. And this is a tradition where philosophy is not simply an academic subject. Philosophy is not even about books necessarily. It's about a way of living, about a way of um, living in conformity with your views. And that's what these thinkers embody for me. And that's why they, they have this extraordinarily charismatic effect on people around them. Of course, in the case of, of Nietzsche, he's also the most incredibly inspiring figure to teenagers. Teenagers have always loved Nietzsche's work because Nietzsche seemed to speak to young people who have a sense that the lives they're living, the lives of the people around them, do not acknowledge a fundamental meaninglessness with which I think teenagers were in contact. So for me, Nietzsche and the Burbs in particular is about restoring the dignity of teenagers, making us understand that teenagers are actually very insightful. They can see through all the postures, all the lies. They can see through cynicism and opportunism. And what they confront is a kind of meaninglessness, which adults often don't want to acknowledge. I mean, I think that's very true. I mean, one reason why Nietzsche and the Burbs struck such a chord with me reading it now is because it reminded me of a time when I was obsessed with not selling out and with not compromising and, you know, looked at the adult worlds of sort of politics and media and culture to some extent and didn't see myself reflected in it, didn't like it, wanted to either change it or destroy it or remove it somehow. And then, of course, you know, here we are 20 years later and I've been through this long process of working in British journalism and in sort of culture industries and come away with all sorts of frustrations and irritations and disappointments and disillusions. But actually just thinking, no, my my teenage self was right about all of these things. And, you know, the sort of 18 year old me, like walking around in like a dead Kennedy's hoodie or walking around in a long coat with a copy of Thus Spoke Zarathustra in the inside pocket, you know, probably actually was much more right about things than like 30 year old me trying to say, well, maybe I can do something interesting in these industries. And these people are trying to work within difficult industry as well. And they're making compromises and maybe the ends will justify the means. And actually, no, the 18 year old me, um, 
had a much better idea of what was going on than the 30-year-old me, I think. Maybe we can move the conversation back to the previous novel then, Wittgenstein Jr., which um, is a novel I, I really love. I reviewed it for The New Statesman. And it's set at Cambridge University, and its structure of the book is that there are a group of students who find themselves feeling very attached in a way that I think is quite common at university. Certain charismatic lecturers will attract a crowd of students who feel particularly influenced and inspired by them. And in Wittgenstein Jr., the students feel inspired and attached to their philosophy tutor, who they nicknamed Wittgenstein Jr. And the you know the novel is a is a campus novel looking at the influence of philosophy on these students' lives, but also looking at the ways in which the coalition era assault on universities, we discussed this in our recent episode about the UTU strikes, but the assault on the universities that really came from the 90s onwards with the introduction of tuition fees and the abolition of student grants, replacing often with student loans, the increasing kind of neoliberalisation of the university, casualization of labour, abolition of humanities and arts departments at certain universities around the country and a general downgrading of these subjects and attempt to dissuade students from studying them. All of these things come into the novel. So I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit about Wittgenstein Jr., uh, you know, what the novel is about and why, again, you use Wittgenstein in particular as the avatar in that novel and how you use autobiographical details from Wittgenstein's life in the book. Mm. Yeah, so Wittgenstein Jr., it's based on the life of Ludwig Wittgenstein, the great philosopher. He was born in 1889, lived, uh, lived until 1951. And my novel was based not just on the life of, of Wittgenstein himself, Ludwig Wittgenstein, but also on the myth of this great Viennese philosopher. So the myth itself is wonderful. The stories of the legends of how Wittgenstein influenced young students at Cambridge and persuaded them not to go into academia, but to go off and get a work, work in a factory instead. These wonderful myths of Wittgenstein, the, the solitary thinker, uh, plagued by self-doubt, drawn to religion, associated with positivism, but appalled by positivism. So this is what I wanted to work with, the life of Wittgenstein and the myth of Wittgenstein. The characters in my novel, my, um, my, my young men in their early 20s, these characters admire this lecturer in their midst because he has something charismatic about him something which they hadn't encountered before, a sense of belonging elsewhere to a more integral tradition, to a place where thought is not something which is always being suspected of pretension. So the idea for my characters is they admire his seriousness, they admire his integrity, and they also admire the way in which he, he as, a, as a lecturer, comes into collision with Cambridge University, with the university of the present. It's set in the present, this novel. So my character, Wittgenstein himself, resembles his historical model. He speaks in a similar gnomic way. He teaches classes without much regard for contemporary attempts to use PowerPoint to explain everything, to use you know, key points and develop, to, to, to explain every single notion that's being used. And my character, Wittgenstein Jr., is very troubled by his contemporaries, by the contemporary dons of Cambridge, who for him are much more concerned with making research bids in the entrepreneurial culture of the contemporary university, rather than with excelling as, as teachers, as exemplars. My character is horrified by the corporatism of the contemporary academic. He's interested in, in everything other than evaluation metrics and networking enterprise zones and, and profit-driven research centres. So my character, Wittgenstein, belongs to an older world, but at the same time, he's also suspicious of this older world. 
he's suspicious of these old-style dons with their sense of common culture and shared endeavour with their patriotism and moral purpose. And he's suspicious of them in the same way we might, we might be suspicious of them today because they, their lives are premised on entrenched privilege, on in- exclusions and subordination based on class and gender and sexuality, religious background, ethnicity. So my Wittgenstein, um, the Wittgenstein of my novel is very unhappy in the present. He's not drawn to figures in the past. The question is then, what can he do? How can he adjust himself to the present? Well, the answer is, like his predecessor, he can't. And he goes off into solitude. And he, he leaves behind this world of Cambridge. But, you know, while he was at Cambridge, he was touched by the devotion of his students. And he falls in love with one of them. He falls in love with this, with this young scholarship boy called Peters. And wrenching himself away from Peters is very difficult for him. The whole novel was conceived as a love story from the very first. It's all about a love of knowledge, a love of philosophy, but also about a love of other philosophers, a love of learning, a love of eros of learning. So that's that's at the heart of the novel. It's about a dramatisation of what it means to learn, what it means to love, to love to learn, and to learn from the person you love. It's a deeply emotive novel, and it, it marks quite a sharp change in some ways, I think, from the previous trilogy, which we'll come back to shortly. I mean, I remember at the time being particularly struck by a passage about Wittgenstein Jr.'s brother, which draws from the actual Wittgenstein's brother's story, uh, where Wittgenstein Jr.'s brother goes to Norway in the hope of um, isolating himself to the point where he can make a number of important philosophical breakthroughs and the not just the loneliness, but the nature of the insights that he accrues ultimately kills him. And it's a really, um, really heartbreaking passage that really, really stayed with me after reading the novel. Um, You've talked about Wittgenstein and this Viennese scene. Of course, another Austrian writer who is a big influence on your work and in the way you structure your narratives is the novelist Thomas Bernhard. And Bernhard, in novels such as Extinction and The Old Masters, used the technique of distancing. It's quite similar to the one Patrick Keeler uses in, in his films. A technique whereby the central character's thoughts and feelings and actions are narrated to you through somebody else. So you never get direct speech from that person. You're kept at a kind of a distance. Their thoughts and feelings are mediated through the narrator. I wonder if you could talk a bit about why, you, why you've used that technique, what it brings to the work. So one of the things I took from Thomas Bernhard is this amazing distancing feature in his narrative the way in which he never gives us his central figures straight, as it were. We always meet them through a distance, a persona, someone who knows these figures, who spends time with these figures, who relates what these figures say. And this was very suggestive to me because it captures, or allowed me to capture a sense of what it means to be interested in these figures today, in figures like Wittgenstein, in figures like Nietzsche. These people are divided um, from us by a chasm. And this chasm is similar to the one which divides us from continental Europe. There are countries in which philosophy is taken very seriously, and thinkers are taken very seriously, and culture is taken very seriously. In the top five bestsellers in France at the moment, there's a book written about Spinoza. This is unthinkable, I think, in our culture. We always want to water things down. We always want to write books which are introductory, or which have some humorous, quirky tip or which um, link philosophers to various, I don't know, lifestyle improvements, how Nietzsche can improve your tennis and so on. And this is why I felt that the use of this um, distancing technique would allow me in my fiction. Because what it would do is set at a remove 
figures like Wittgenstein Jr., the teenage Nietzsche, to set them at a remove and for my characters to show their fascination of these figures, but also their embarrassment at what they regard to be pretension. So my characters are fascinated by Wittgenstein, fascinated by Nietzsche, but they, all, they also find them a bit unbearable. They also find them a bit, a bit silly, a bit too ponderous, and they laugh at them as well as admire them. So that's what this, I think of it as, as a British distance does. And it captures something which I also feel. So I feel a sense in which I'm distant from the figures I admire, that I cannot pose as a philosopher with a capital P, as a thinker with a capital T. But these roles are simply not available to me. And that distance, that British distance, is something I think which allowed me to turn to fiction, which made me turn to fiction and find in writing fictional works about philosophers a way of dramatising both the proximity I would feel with respect to them and that very British distance, that suspicion of pretension. Something from the Spurious trilogy that really, really stuck with me was in the final novel, Exodus, published in 2013. And there's a long passage about the philosophy students from Essex University, which has quite a famous philosophy department. It's very highly regarded. And a long passage just giving a sentence or two on the fate of all these students who went through the university. And there's this sense that, what's the line? Is it that, you know, things seen close up are a tragedy and things seen in long shot are a comedy? Is that right? Yeah. And But, you know, in in this passage, there's a real sense of, tragedy just in the couple of sentences you give to all these students because they've gone to Essex University with these really high hopes and can promise a bright future by university education and then you know just in a sentence or two the lives of all these people either collapse or explode or implode or just peter out. For me it really tied in with the disappointments of a whole generation who were promised that you know 50% of British um, sick formers would be going to university or even 50% of the population as a whole. And then finding, of course, that university education does not open up this golden path that has been promised. So I'd like to move the conversation back onto the Spurious trilogy now. I mean, that passage is quite tragic, but the books as a whole are very, very funny. They take place at the end of history, characterised in the sort of long 1990s that now feel very much like they're definitively coming to an end. And the central characters are called Lars and W., and they're both philosophy lecturers in different universities. And they constantly argue, mainly because they're taking out their frustrations about the impossibility of leading philosophical lives in a society where the stakes feel so low. So maybe you could talk about who Lars and W are in the Spurious trilogy and how they interact with each other in this particular context. Yeah, that's a friend of mine, um, Will. So Will and I used to phone each other up in, in despair. Because at that time, Will's university wasn't doing particularly well in general. And it looked like, and in fact, it actually happened in the end, it looked like philosophy was going to be closed. In fact, at Will's university, where I was external examiner, they closed down almost all the humanities. Things weren't going well there. And that university reinvented itself as a, as a nursing college. So Will was living through that period. And I was in a, in a very strange department of philosophy based in a chemical engineering unit here at Newcastle University. That's now history. That, that's, that's something which, which belongs to ancient history at Newcastle. And the philosophy department has moved to a, a much more sensible place. But both of us were, were working in these very peculiar circumstances. 
And we were actually, both of us, fearing losing our jobs fairly soon. I mean, things did not look good for us. And what we would do is phone each other up and, and commiserate and travel around the country giving papers at other universities where the philosophy departments were about to close. So the novel Exodus you referred to earlier, in Exodus, the first place they go, the Will and Lars go and talk at is Middlesex University. And the Middlesex University philosophy department uh, had closed the previous year. Other universities, they travel around, uh, around the country to, to various places. The whole novel was an elegy for these departments that are closing. And it's no coincidence that these departments that are closing are departments of European philosophy. So these are European philosophy departments, and there are very few of these in the UK even now. In fact, the number is probably dwindling. The amount of European philosophy you can actually study in philosophy departments is decreasing, even as at the same time, European philosophy is read throughout the humanities and beyond the humanities. If you go to any bookshop, it's full of um, European philosophy. In philosophy departments in the UK, you generally cannot study it. You're unable to study it. We were told... When I, was, when I was an undergraduate student, this thought was dangerous. In one of my first jobs where I taught, the very walls of the department were decorated with anti-continental philosophy articles from The Guardian and elsewhere. That's the climate in which Spurious and, and those other two novels were written, and the characters in the novel are European philosophers who are totally adrift, totally at sea. They feel and what their, their work has no impact whatsoever on the world around them, and they're due to lose their jobs at any moment. Can we talk about the use of autofiction here? Because, you know, as you say, the characters Lars and W, you know, they're you and your friend Will. Why use this kind of autofiction technique? These um, novels came out of a blog. The blog was called Spurious. And Spurious was something which I really, really loved doing. The blogging revolution came along at a point in my life where I was just dying for something like this. I, I entered this blogging world with incredible excitement. It was just wonderful. It's certainly the best writing experience in my life. And one of the great things about blogs was you can put up whatever you want online discussing philosophical issues and philosophers, and Google would direct plenty of readers to your blog. So it amazed me just how many uh, readers were reading the blog and how conversations between blogs spread across the whole blogosphere. Very, very exciting period. Now, I was doing, I was writing these posts on my blog, which were very influenced by, um, by Maurice Blanchot, the French literary writer, uh, novelist, literary critic, philosopher too, I suppose. He was born in 1907 and died in 2003. So he was a figure who influenced me very, very enormously as a, as, a, as a thinker, as a philosopher. And I felt that my academic work on Blanchot was totally inadequate. And it was totally against the spirit of Blanchot's work. I wanted to engage with this work in a more literary manner. And that's what I felt the blog allowed me to do. However, I was accused by all kinds of people of being hopelessly pretentious, <laughs> not least my, my future wife, who thought the blog was utterly unbearable, except for the cartoon strip, the comic strip. It wasn't a real comic strip, but it was just a series of conversations that I wrote down that I had had with my friend Will. And what I did with these, with these conversations is I, I, I changed them, I condensed them, I tried to make them funnier and pithier, but they were, in essence the kind of exchanges I'd have with, with Will and the kind of things we'd talk about as we went around the country to these doomed departments, as we visited each other's departments and each other's houses. So the novel Spurious Dogma and Exodus 
came out of this of this blog experience of writing these comic exchanges, which people really seem to enjoy. And at a certain point, as one of my future wife moved over to, to Britain, at a certain point I thought I'm going to abandon these Blanchot-related musings and literary attempts. I'm going to abandon those. I'm actually going to try and put together a longer narrative which um, might form something like a novel. I'd never thought about it before. I, you know, I wrote these, these, these things just to amuse myself and my friends. But then I thought, okay, I'll, I'll actually put this together to make a, a sustained narrative. And at the same time, there was interest in, 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 from publishers in the blog. And that's what led to publication. So what's interesting here is, I hope anyway, what's interesting is that my failure as a, as a so-called philosopher, as an academic philosopher at least, that failure led to a peculiar kind of success in literary writing. So that, oddly enough, my failure as a philosopher was the condition of my writing novels, of writing literary works. A great surprise to me. So it struck me that at uh, this time, the turn of the last decade, so early 2010s, autofiction was also a revival of interest in Chris Krause's work. And she was still publishing new novels, of course. People like Sheila Hetty, Jean-Philippe Toussaint uh, were publishing novels that quite deliberately blurred the boundary between the author's life and the life of the protagonist in the novel, often by giving them the same name or some of the same names, the same first names, maybe as you do, as Gila Hetty did, as Jean-Philippe Toussaint did. And this creates a game for the reader, to some extent, where the, you know, the autobiographical pact is blurred, and it's a game for the reader to work out how much of the novel is the author's life and how much is invention and decide whether or not that's important or whether that matters when you're reading novels. You know, this strikes me as a game that only works when the stakes are low. And of course, the Spurious trilogy makes a lot of play on the stakes being low. Indeed, that's the whole structure and conceit of the novels. So, you know, obviously these novels were published at the beginning of a decade that turned out to be extraordinarily politically turbulent you know the effects of the financial crash played out in a slightly delayed way you know you had like the greek debt crisis the syrian war and the consequent migration and right-wing political responses to that you know you've had the rise of jeremy corbyn and bernie sanders obviously brexit and trump all sorts of other examples of political turbulence and turmoil so i wondered like how you feel about the spurious trilogy now and whether you'd write them sort of differently after this sort of decade if you were to return to them well the spurious trilogy was all was based on real events all of it and that was the rule i gave myself in writing it it was based on real things that happened i suppose i couldn't i couldn't conceive of writing it now because my life has changed completely um since since, since those days when I was just travelling around, had loads of time, and uh, you know, I was reading all these books, I, I, I've got no time to read now. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, um, it's, it's a question which is almost impossible to answer, because it's predicated on the kind of life I was leading back then. But the background of those novels was always um, climatic change and financial catastrophe. Many of the papers that Will and I were giving when we were travelling around the country were based on the work of um, a theologian called Philip Goodchild, and Philip, I think, now works in, in philosophy at Nottingham. And Philip's work was very helpful for Will and I, because it introduced us to questions of political economy. And that's really, really interested us. And Spurious is set, now I think it's set about 2006, in the run-up to the um, financial crash. And we were very aware in 2006, actually before that time, that something was brewing, that something was about, about to happen, and we're simply waiting for the trigger event. 
similar to the situation now, you know, something was brewing, something terrible, and the trigger event is COVID-19. So we were, we were waiting for this event to happen. And that ominousness is right there in the novel from the very start. There's also the question of, of climatic change. And again, Philip, Philip's work was very, very good on climatic change. He wrote a book called Capitalism and Religion. It's got a wonderful introduction which um, sets out the stakes of philosophical reflection on climate change and the importance of this, of this topic to philosophy. So these are exactly the things that uh, Will and I were talking about and that are still playing out now. So, you know, 2008, as we all know, didn't bail out. There's no, there's no bailout of the debtors. There's a bailout, a bailout of the creditors. And exactly the same thing is happening now in the midst of the COVID crisis, that the same creditors are being, are being bailed out, the bankers are being bailed out. Airlines run by Richard Branson are being bailed out. The same thing seems to repeat itself over and over again. So in that sense, I think the novels, particularly at least, should still be relevant now because exactly the same logic is being applied. Yeah, I agree. And I'd like to sort of ask you how you feel as well about something else that you wrote around about this time, which was a manifesto you wrote for the White Review called Nude in Your Hot Tub Facing the Abyss. It's a literary manifesto after the end of literature manifestos. And I'm going to quote a bit. Uh, you talk about the decreasing distance between writers and their audiences. And I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from that introduction, which say, Soon, writers began to take flats in the town and took jobs. Indeed, whole cities were settled and occupied by writers. They pontificated on every subject under the sun, granted interviews, and published in the local press St. Mountain books. Some even made a living from their sales. And when those sales dwindled, they taught about writing at Olympia City College. And when the college stopped hiring in the humanities, they wrote memoirs about mountain living. They became savvy in publicity because it became evident that the publishing industry was an arm of the publicity industry and the smart ones worked first in advertising which was a good place to hone the craft and the writers began to outnumber the public and it became apparent the public was only a hallucination after all just as the importance of writing was mostly a hallucination now you sit at your desk dreaming of literature skimming the wikipedia page about the novel as you snack on saucy treats and watch dog and cat videos on your phone you post to your blog and tweet the most profound things you can think to tweet you labour over a comment about a trending topic, trying to make it meaningful. You whisper the names like a devotional, Kafka, Lotriamo, Bataille, Dura, hoping to conjure the ghost of something you scarcely understand, something preposterous and obsolete that nevertheless preoccupies you every living day. And you find yourself laughing in spite of yourself, laughing helplessly at yourself, laughing to the verge of tears. You click new document and sit there, shaking, staring at your computer screen, and wonder what in the world you can possibly write now. And I bring this up because I wonder how you feel about this narrowing distance between writers, their readers, and the wider world at this point, and perhaps about the quarantine period as well. Maybe this has changed your feelings about this distance, though, of course, we're very early into this lockdown and we don't know how long it's going to last. But I've been feeling this about writing over the last month or so, the point where the COVID-19 crisis has just completely taken over the news agenda because it's led to a situation where I don't actually know what world I'm writing into now. You know, I mean, I was very involved with the Labour election effort and the Corbyn project over the last few years. But even the crushing defeat in, in December, much as it just destroyed me, I still had a good idea of what world I was going to write into and an idea of the ways in which I would position myself, the position myself in relation to who I thought my audience were and what I thought the world I was writing into. I had some idea of how that might work. 
now I don't really. And I wondered how you might be feeling about these these issues at this point. Yes, the manifesto was something I wrote in collaboration with my editor at Melville House, Nathan Ihara. And I always really enjoy thinking back to, to working with Nathan on it. And Nathan was amazing at motivating me to write it. But I simply couldn't see the point. It seemed to me the most pointless article you could possibly write. I remember it came out originally in a very small journal. It was only when it was republished that it went absolutely viral. And it's been viewed tens of thousands of times um, on the original White Review website. So it did seem to enjoy a real cultural effect. But my world is very different. You know, I was an academic philosopher for many years. The books I published in academic philosophy had no more audience than two or three hundred. The articles I published as an academic philosopher had audiences in the tens, even single-figure audiences. They had no impact on the world at large. And that's, that's what I'm used to. I don't really have any sense of an audience. One of the things I've always been very interested in is authorial personas. The persona of someone like Blanchot. Blanchot, unlike me, refused to do interviews. He didn't do readings. He didn't didn't promote his books in any way. And likewise, I'm interested in the the, the musician um, Jandek, in in this collective outfit called Jandek. I'll use that word to refer to him as well. Jandek, likewise, um, does very, very few interviews. I think three in his whole life. Doesn't do normal promotional things. Simply puts out his albums himself. These are the people I admired. You know, these are, the, these, these are my culture heroes, almost like outsider artists who weren't part of any literary musical mainstream in, in, in the case of um, Jandek, and whose fictional writings seemed to baffle everyone, uh, like Blanchot. So when I first had to enter this world of social media, I found it extremely difficult because I always held myself at a distance from my blog writings. My blog was anonymous, and I loved that. It wasn't linked, linked to my proper name. It wasn't linked to my face. I remember putting my first post up on, 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 on Facebook and having to drink really quite a lot to be able to do that, let alone Twitter. At that time, when I first started on Twitter, it was an absolute abomination. In fact, my excellent editor at Melville House at the time, Nathan, Nathan actually had to write it for me because I, I simply couldn't do it. It took a long time to, to work into that. But the contemporary author is in this position now that we have to hustle for our books. If you're publishing for an independent publisher, you simply have to work to promote your book. You have to do all the interviews you can. You have to write essays and articles because that's the only way you're going to get your name out there. And I'm very happy to do this now because, you know, I'm, I'm part of this a publisher, I'm part of Melville House, I'm part of a team of people there. And everyone's working hard for the novel and, and I should do this too. So the earlier horror I've had has gradually fallen away. But sometimes I do wonder, my God, what's become of me? I never would have done this kind of promotional work, say, 12, 13 years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's been my experience too when I was an undergraduate at Manchester and I was trying to decide if I wanted to be a writer or be the front person of a of a band called Zinoviev Letter that would be the new Joy Division. And I kind of decided on pursuing writing partly because I wasn't so reliant on other people and in fact, you know, I thought I wouldn't really have to deal with other people at all. I thought I could, you know, sit in my attic room and write and people would just like find my work and like it. And I would somehow sustain myself and just keep writing without any interaction with the outside world at all. And that would be fine. And of course, that's not how writing works. That's never how writing has worked. But even then, you know, I couldn't have predicted the amount to which my life in writing would involve, yeah, giving interviews, doing journalism, but in particular public speaking. 
and I think I've kind of embraced that through doing this series of podcasts, but also, you know, the process of building up an audience on Twitter. I remember talking to my good friend, Joe Stretch, who is a creative writing teacher at Manchester Metropolitan now and a novelist who's also front person of a band in Manchester. And Joe said to me something about, you know, he said to me, we're talking about Twitter in particular. And Joe said to me, look, I'm a dreamer. I'm not interested in building up an audience one by one by being witty. And I said, for me, it's even worse because actually as this like trans activist author, which is how I was being positioned, wasn't really how I saw myself. Uh, but as this like, activist author, I'm expected to build up an audience one by one by being angry, but not by being so angry that I reiterate negative stereotypes about trans people being unduly angry, even though we've got mm. a lot to be angry about. And I think we should be angrier, actually, especially at this point. But yeah, I mean, you know, Twitter is something that I've always had an incredibly difficult relationship with because I am addicted to it and I'm embarrassed by my own addiction to it and I quit for a long time and then came back with the Sweet 212 account and then decided to open my own account again where I've sort of found myself now thinking in this sort of pithy witty but angry way of thinking that plays quite well on on Twitter and you know started to tweet a few things lately that have gone viral and then been deeply ashamed of myself for going viral and deeply frustrated that I can make some sort of stupid offhand comment about capitalism collapsing uh, and that gets all the kind of hits and then I can tweet an article I've written about I don't know the creation feminist artist Sandra Vekovic and just, it's confirmed to you that no one cares through the tiny number of retweets and likes that these things get. So that feels like a nice place to just bring back to my final question then, which is about your your next novel, which is the third part of the trilogy that includes Wittgenstein Jr. and uh, Nietzsche and the Burbs. So maybe you could tell us about who the central character in that novel is, where it's set, and when we might hope to read it. The, the new novel is called Simone Weil, and it's based on the philosopher um, Simone Weil. Now, Simone Weil died very young, she died at the age of 34, she died in, in Ashford, in Kent, of all places. Very strange place for her to end up. Simone Weil was, um, now when did she die? In the 1940s at some point, I think 1945, something like that. She was a most remarkable figure. She was a very active person politically. She intervened in all kinds of political contexts from an ultra-left-wing perspective. She's also a mystic. She had mystical experiences, and she became later in life, uh, very, very, very Christian. And she writes theologically in the most fascinating way. I love Simone Weil's essays, but what I enjoy reading by her most are the last notebook entries she wrote when she was living in London and she was living in New York. Because, of course, France was occupied in 1940. She fled France. She wanted to re-enter France, actually. She's trying to persuade Charles de Gaulle that she'd lead some cadre of, of nurses, almost suicidal nurses, who would go and tend to people on the worst battlefronts. But Simone Weil was, was working for the Free French in, in London, and spent time in New York as well. And in that period, she wrote these incredible notebooks, very, very lucid in all, on all kinds of different subjects. She was translating Sanskrit and commenting on the Bhagavad Gita. She was writing about ancient Greek tragedy and, and, you know, and translating bits of Greek. She was reflecting on mathematics. And more than that, she was writing on religion, on, on Christianity. She was developing her own distinctive philosophy of religion. These are incredibly rich documents. In fact, I find them almost too rich. I actually find them very hard to read. I can't I'm just sustainably read them for any period. I find them almost too dazzling. So I really admire Simone Weil. I adore her work. And I think when we first met, it occurred to me on that day, Julia, back in London in 2011, 
it occurred to me on that day that what might be interesting to do is to think of Simone Weil as a trans um, character, to think of her as someone who transitioned. I thought that might be really interesting. Of course, what tempted me by th- um, in, in this project was, was calling the novel <laughs> My Way. <laughs> and and uh, the idea was, <laughs> it's a really ridiculous idea, of making this Simone Bay character a um, some sort of Frank Sinatra cover artist. Anyway, this, this is all completely crazy, but the idea never stayed with me. I wanted to remain loyal to it. What I wanted to pay tribute to was queer Manchester. I went to Manchester to live, uh, to study at university, like you did, Juliet. So I went up there because of the music. I love the music. And what I found uh, most exciting and most interesting was the idea of being at some kind of queer frontier. The people were living unusual and interesting lives. They'd left the suburbs behind to embrace this new world. And that's what I wanted to pay tribute to in, in this novel I'm writing now, Simone Vey, which, like my previous novels in this trilogy, is set in the present. When I lived in Manchester doing my PhD, I lived in a very unusual house. And the person who owned the house used to welcome all kinds of people to live there. And we'd all live in rooms in this big house in Chalton in Manchester. And we all lived in these rooms and we'd, we'd assemble every evening for dinner. We, all, we, did all, we, we did all kinds of odd things in life, all kinds of different things. People living there who were, one guy was a roofer, um, another guy was a translator, another person ran his, ran his own IT business. I was a PhD student. Yeah. So it's very interesting to meet all kinds of different people. And we'd all assemble at dinner, we'd all get together and share our experiences of the day. And there were always lots of monks around. There were always uh, people like hermits. Because the person who ran the house was a Greek Orthodox cantor. And he's very much rooted in the Greek Orthodox world. So it had a sort of monastic flavour. There's always wonderful icons all over the place. And it's very interesting, um, a very interesting place to be, just uh, to encounter people from all over the world, from all sorts of um, religious backgrounds. And I wanted to pay tribute to that world as well, because again, it was, it was a queer world. It was a world where people weren't living conventional lives. People were trying to work out who it is they were, what it is they wanted to do. And we got together, it was all crossing class lines, background lines, nationalities. So I wanted to pay tribute to that world, which I, which I loved in, 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 in Manchester. And that's what the novel's all about. Well, I can't wait to read it. I, I can hear from, from some of the background noise. I think you, you might have family calling. So I think this is probably a good place to to stop. But Lars, it's it's been a pleasure as always. I can't wait to read the next book, having having enjoyed all of the previous ones. So Lars, thank you for joining me on Sweet 212 today. Thanks very much for having me, Juliet. Listeners, we will have more Sweet 212 sessions coming shortly with the author Joanna Walsh and the artist Abba Sahedi, amongst others. We will keep you posted on that. Follow us on Twitter at Sweet underscore 212. Subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Sweet dash 212. Find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Sweet dash 212. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back soon. Take care. Goodbye.